0: So we now come to our next lesson as it pertains to the doctrine of God's providence. Over the last few weeks, we've gone over what this doctrine was, and last Lord's Day, we started talking about one of the aspects, one of the elements as it pertains to the doctrine of God's providence. But before we move on to the next point, the next aspect that I'd like for us to discuss, I want us to quickly just review what we've learned thus far. So if you remember, our confession of faith in chapter 5, section 1, gives us a definition of providence, and it says it in this way. God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. We noted in my first lesson how important this doctrine was. We saw how an understanding that God providentially preserves and governs all things that should help us to be able to look at the big picture, to not focus on our own present circumstances, but to look at it in light of the plan that God has in mind. We saw how understanding God's providence was a motivating factor in regards to prayer, knowing that God is listening to us. He is not just a God who is far off, but a God who is near, who hears when we call to him. We saw how understanding this doctrine of God's providence motivated us in regards to walking by faith, trusting him, knowing that everything is in his hands. So all we need to do is be obedient to him, like the old song, trust and obey. We understand that because we know that God providentially preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions. And then we noted, most importantly, that because this is true, that it secured our redemption. We noted how everything that had to happen in order for Christ to come in the fashion that he did was able to happen because God so ordered all the events to happen in this way. Even things that would have seemed random, like Caesar Augustus rising to the throne was all part of God's sovereign plan. And then we saw how a misunderstanding and a misapplication of this doctrine led to wrong thinking. Things like laziness, recklessness, carelessness, presumption were a direct result of understanding that God providentially preserves and governs all things, but ignoring our duties, ignoring the requirements that God gives us in light of that truth and how we are not to walk in that way, but to understand that we still have duties even though we know that God upholds all things. And then last Lord's Day, we dove in to the different aspects in regards to God's providence. If you recall, I had mentioned that there were three elements or aspects as it pertained to God's providence. They were his divine preservation, his divine government, and his divine concurrence. And if you recall, I mentioned that divine preservation dealt with the being of all things, divine government, the guidance, and divine concurrence, the activity of all things. And we noted that when we spoke of divine preservation, what we meant was this, that it was God's continuous work whereby he sustains and upholds all created things. And we saw last Lord's Day, the extent of that, how God, not being a watchmaker God, not just setting laws of nature, but rather actively continuously upholding all things, upholds and sustains us, nature, creature, and all of this for his glory and to ensure that his end plan is met. So now that brings us to today and the next aspect that I want for us to discuss, which is God's divine government. But before we get into that, I think the first thing that's worth us discussing is what do we mean by the term government? I mean, if you think about it, the word government carries many different meanings. It could be in reference to a direct government, for example, you know, Washington, D.C., senators or whatnot. Government could also mean something in a more verb sense, like control or whatnot. So, what do we mean when we talk about this term government? Well, Webster's dictionary gives us this as its first two definitions of government. First is control and restraint. The second is the exercise of authority, direction and restraint, exercise over the actions of men in communities, societies, or states. Now, we know and acknowledge that God is sovereign over all things and has authority over all, and the extent of his government has no bounds. God, having authority over all, uses that to ensure that his eternal purposes, his eternal purposes are fulfilled. And he does that by directing everything towards his end goal. So if we were to give a definition to the word to divine government, we would define it in this way. It is that aspect of God's providence whereby in order to ensure that his decree is accomplished, he exercises his complete authority over all creation by directing and guiding all their actions towards his end goal. Turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter four, verses 34 through 35. Now, any of you familiar with, with the book of Daniel and familiar in particular with this particular chapter, Daniel chapter four, knows what I'm about to read here. As you know, we, there was a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon. And he was a pretty prideful person, a person that looked at everything that he has in his kingdom and looked at it and said, I built that, I created that, I was the one that did all of this. And God humbled him. God made him insane for a brief period. And after his sanity was restored, we read this, what Nebuchadnezzar states, verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So there are a couple of things of note that I want for us to see in this passage because it pertains to God's divine government. One is this, God has a kingdom that is everlasting in time and universal in extent. Two, God does according to his will not man's. And third, God's plan cannot be stopped by anyone. So we see in this passage here that definition, that understanding of God's divine government. Now, just to make sure that I'm clear and that you understand the difference between divine government and divine preservation, I do want to make sure that I'm just making this clear. You know, when we talk about divine preservation, we understand that that deals with God sustaining and preserving all things. Whereas when we talk about divine government, that's dealing with God guiding all things. They're not independent of one another, but these elements are highlighting a different aspect of God's providence. With divine preservation, God must ensure that all things are sustained as he determines for his plans to be fulfilled. With divine government, he also must ensure that all things are moving in the direction he determines so that his plans are fulfilled. And when we understand God's divine government, we understand that this extends to all things, just like divine preservation. It extends in the civil realm to civil government. We just saw it with Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. Another example, or continuing on, we understand from reading that, that God is the one who establishes that those who are in power. He is. It is he who determines who will rule and who will be removed from power. Daniel chapter 2 verses 21 tells us this. It is he, that is God, who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. And then we see in Romans chapter 13 verses 1 this truth. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. So we see that aspect. We also see not only is God establishing those who rule, but he also uses them to accomplish his purposes. Proverbs 21, verse 1, turn to it. Solomon writes, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And then Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 6, we see Isaiah writing this, prophesying, woe to Assyria, The rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. So we see in passages like both of these here, which we're going to get into a little bit more detail on next Lord's Day when we talk about divine concurrence, but I bring it up because what we notice in those two verses here is the fact of God directing even the actions of kings to fulfill his purposes mind you Assyria is not a godly nation, wasn't a godly nation then but then God uses them for his purposes just like God's divine government extends to nations, to the civil realm it extends to the individual to people as well. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, we read Solomon telling us this, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. At the end of the day, our plans will only come to pass if they are in line with God's ultimate purposes. The plans, for example, of Joseph's brothers to have him go into Egypt came to pass only because it served God's ultimate purpose, which was to bring redemption to the nation of Israel. You see an example of this, albeit probably in a more direct fashion, when you look at the book of Acts. So turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter sixteen, verses six through ten, with Paul and Timothy. So when you look at this passage, it's interesting. You you, you see this starting in verse six. They pass through the. Phygean and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bethniah, Beth, and the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So it's interesting. You you see in this passage, again, in a more direct fashion, God guiding the steps of both Paul and Timothy by stopping them from going into certain places. So we see in the scriptures that God's divine government, again, extends to the individual. And it doesn't just stop with people, but it extends to nature As well, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 104, verse 4. And take a look at what the scriptures say. Psalm 104, verse 4. The psalmist writes this. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fires his ministers. Just as with kingdoms and people, it's not just that God controls nature. But his control is for a specific purpose, just like with us. For example, in Exodus chapter 16, when the Israelites were complaining after coming out of Egypt because they had no food, God provides for them manna and quail. And then we see, when you look, when you look at that passage along with Numbers chapter 11, how he does that by sending a strong wind to bring the quail to them. So we see in an account like this that God using nature to bring Israelites meat in the wilderness. And then we see in Jonah chapter one, verse four, after Jonah disobeys God by not going to Nineveh, but trying to go into Tarshish, we read this. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. So you see God sending a violent windstorm to get Jonah to go to Nineveh. These are examples of what the psalmist meant in Psalm 104, verse four, when he says he makes the winds his messengers, flaming fires his ministers. And these aren't the only examples. You can find other examples. For example, God sending down the rain of fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Elijah asking God to send down the flames of fire from heaven down on the messengers sent from King Ahaziah. God sending the hailstorm on Egypt during the time of Moses. These are all examples of nature obeying God, serving God's purposes. I want you to think about that next time you know you see a major weather event taking place. Now, we don't know the specific reason why certain acts of nature happen. So why, for example, with, was it Tropical Storm Ada, why it made like this weird kind of Two shaped turn or anything like that. We have no idea why that takes, why it happens in that way. But we do realize that even a storm like that is obeying the commands of God. We don't need to know what the purposes are to understand that even nature is obeying God. And it doesn't stop there with nature, it extends even to animals. Numbers chapter 21. Verses six, you see this. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Jonah chapter one, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And then think about the plagues in Egypt. Three of the plagues involved animals, frogs, locusts, and gnats or flies. In all of these accounts, you see God exercising his authority over the animals by appointing them to fulfill his plans. So in every single aspect of creation, God being king, being ruler, being sovereign over all is exercising that and exercising his dominion and his control so as to ensure that everyone obeys what he commands. And being that God is sovereign over all things, that does mean that his exercise of divine government cannot be hindered or thwarted by anyone. Psalm chapter 33, verses 10 through 11, the psalmist writes, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. God frustrates the plans of the people's. It is God's counsel that stands forever. Proverbs 21 verse 30. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. None. What counsel? What plan that people bring that can thwart the plan of God? The answer is none. Lamentation chapter three, verse 37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? So unlike the word of faith people who would say we can speak things into existence or we can speak and it comes to pass, the Bible is pretty clear. None can speak and it comes to pass unless the Lord commands it. I love this example, this account in the Gospel of John. Turn there with me because this highlights exactly what I'm getting at here. In this account, this is after Jesus gets arrested, and is standing before Pontius Pilate. And I want you to listen to the exchange that they have. So this is John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 10 through 11. In verse 10, so Pilate said to him, that is Jesus, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So here you have Pontius Pilate, after Jesus was arrested, telling Jesus that, hey, I got the authority to release you and I got the authority to crucify you. And Jesus corrects him and says, actually, no, you don't. The only reason that this is taking place right now is because God is allowing this to happen. You are following God's purposes. It's not the other way around. I mean, think about this. We noted a couple of lessons ago how the plans of God were what prevailed when it came to Joseph and him being sent into Egypt, as well as even in Jesus' birth and crucifixion. Remember, Herod wanted to kill the Messiah. And in him seeking to do that, they fled to Egypt and fulfilled other prophecy. So, Herod, in trying to eliminate prophecy, actually helped to fulfill additional prophecy. You cannot stop the hand of God. You cannot thwart his plans. You cannot thwart his counsel. And it is God's divine government that helps us to see that he so controls all things. He has authority over all that he guides and directs all things to meet his end purposes. Now, I think this is so important for us to remember, especially right now in light of what's been going on the last couple of weeks with the election itself. You know, understanding this ought to give us confidence for today. I mean, we just had a recent election, and the results aren't 100% certain as of today. And who knows, there may be a change in office, which obviously for many Christians would be discouraging. Because we obviously don't want people in power who don't follow biblical counsel or who would try to subvert the church. But see, we cannot forget that God's purposes will always stand, regardless. It is God's will that will prevail. Every single person who rules, each and every nation on the planet are ultimately fulfilling the plans of God whether they realize it or not. Just like King Herod, just like Caesar Augustus. He had no idea in issuing the decree for the census that he was helping to fulfill prophecy. But yet, that's what happened. So while of course we would absolutely prefer and desire to have people in power who submit themselves fully to the law of God, God's purposes are not hindered by ungodly rulers. Bobby, one of my most favorite psalms to meditate on and to think about is Psalm chapter 2. And in Psalm chapter 2, If you know that psalm, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords from them. So you see the godless rulers seeking to subvert, to bring their plans to pass. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords from them. And then what does the psalmist says? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So God is looking at this and saying, oh, how cute. They think that they can actually subvert what I have got planned. And then he continues. He says he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God is saying, all right, so you want to do this? Actually, i got my king that I'm going to set on Zion, my holy hill. Matter of fact, let me tell you of the decree. I will tell you, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Who's really the one in control here? It is not man, but it is God, which is why the psalmist continues to go on and says, Now therefore, O oh kings, be wise, be warned, the rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, do homage to the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. So make no mistake about it, submit to Him. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's such a good song. So do not worry or be discouraged. Remember that God has an end goal in mind that cannot be thwarted by anyone. He has His plan. And as God, he sustains all things to ensure his plan will be accomplished. And as God, he is indeed also working all things and guiding all things towards that end goal. That is our God. So don't forget that. Well, this brings us to the end of our lesson today. Next Lord's Day, we're going to touch upon the final point as it pertains to to the aspects of God's providence and talking about a more complicated aspect which is divine concurrence